Today on Physically Spiritual, I'm honored to talk to Simone Rizcala. We discuss her journey, loneliness, and the Eucharist. Welcome to Physically Spiritual. I've been amazed by how much growing physically healthier has changed my spiritual life. I'm captivated by discovering the truth about my body and how it reveals God. Physically Spiritual is my attempt to harmonize and share what I've discovered. I'm your host, Andrew Reinhardt. Well, today, like I said, I have a, 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 a great uh, honor to talk to Simone Rizcala. She spent over two decades of service in the new evangelization. She mentors women through the educational initiatives of endowed groups, which is dedicated to cultivating a new feminism in the church and the world, according to the vision of Pope St. John Paul II. As a daughter of immigrants from the Armenian diaspora in Cairo, Egypt, she has a particular interest in matters of religious freedom and culture. You can find her talks and everything she does at culturalgypsy.com. And she is also the host of the Endow podcast. Welcome to the show, Simone. Thank you so much, Andrew. My pleasure being here. I, I start every episode by just simply asking people to share how God and his providence and love kind of worked in your story to bring you to the work you're doing now. Yeah. Gosh, that is quite, quite a story. I would say that um, I credit the Holy Spirit uh, for really leading you step by step. I think any, anyone can say that, of course, the Holy Spirit gets mm-hmm. all the glory. But I think for me, in a very particular way, more than any other person of the Trinity, it was the Holy Spirit that, that I was the closest to, you could say, so to speak because of my devotion to him as a young adult. I think I I um, left I left a university kind of still as an existential orphan, so to speak, even as a Christian. Um, our culture doesn't do a very good job of providing, uh, you know, first things first, principles of the faith, uh, you know, good Christian values, moral values. So just leaving kind of confused about, uh, and even though I had those things as a Christian, there wasn't the other piece of it, which is that we want to kind of get out of basic principles and into the specifics of what our unique personal vocations are. Mm-hmm. That uh, was a big question mark, as many people in their early 20s uh, go through. Um, and so for me, it was encountering a prayer by St. Ambrose that I think was the twitch upon the thread that kind of led me into this, this path that I'm living in now. And that prayer is, Teach me, O Lord, to search for you. Show yourself to me when I search for you. If you do not teach me first, I cannot seek you. Hmm. If you do not reveal yourself to me, I cannot find you. In longing, may I search for you, and in searching, long for you. In love, may I find you, and in finding you, may I love you. So for me, that prayer was the prayer that gave me a lot of peace, and I knew that 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 metanoia, that mindset shift that actually my life is actually in God's hands. I don't have to neurotically figure it out. Actually, I just need to entrust it to him and just follow where I think he's leading me. Yeah. That idea of figuring it out. I, um, I have a, a, our oldest son's a two-year-old right now. And, uh, you know, he's still in the phase where he thinks if he can't see you, you can't see him. You know, it's like he'll, he'll hide. And so like, you know, he wants you to say like, oh, where are you? And, um, you know, I think of like Adam and Eve in the garden after they sin and they hide. And, and I feel like in our spiritual brokenness, like we offer that motive. We think like if, well, if I can't see God, then God can't see me. Um, and like, it just points out our, um, like our utter like dependence on God and that idea of like, oh, I don't have to figure it out. Like 
I can't even seek God if he doesn't help me to seek him. Like even the most basic fulfillment of our instincts as humans, we're reliant on the Lord um, to be able to do those things. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, what was that internal shift like from like that striving, that needing to figure it out to realizing like you can't even do the most basic thing without God's grace? Yeah, I, I think the internal shift was the way that I was viewing God. And I love that story. I mean, I think that's such a great analogy of your two-year-old that there's sometimes we, I don't think this is like malicious or even intentional, but sometimes we approach God like he's on some, like he's enjoying uh, this, like, like, like we're on a spiritual scavenger hunt that like never ends. And, and you know what? <laughs> And he just delights in the fact that we're just never going to figure it out. And he doesn't want to tell us what he's up to. And it's just so hard. And, you know, everything's so mysterious. And things are mysterious, but they're, but actually, God is trying to tell us everything. He's an over communicator. He hmm. wants us to know exactly what he's up to. He says, I, I don't, you know, I, this father and the son, he, he, I, you know, this is scriptural. You know, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. You tell your friends what's happening. So I think it was internally, oh, there's like, there's not some like, there's not a spiritual trick or game that God's playing with me, keeping me in the dark or out of the loop. No, he delights in and wants to tell me everything. Hmm. So there's, he's not playing any games with me. Um, and then the other part of it was just like utter relief that like a reminder of my identity and my dignity as a child. And I think the one thing that really does that unholy self-reliance, again, whether it's intentional or not, and I, don't, I think oftentimes it's not intentional, we do live in a culture that's extremely self-reliant and individualistic. Again, there's, there's nothing in the culture right now that is really helping the spiritual life, that's really helping human flourishing. It's, it's all really a battle. Um, so I think that was a relief, like, oh, right, like, just like you said, like, Actually, I'm your problem. Like, I'm your child. You, I'm a two-year-old. You get to take care of me. Mm. I think that's why Saint Therese, um, was it Pius the Tenth, called her the greatest saint in modern times because I think she knew this very early on. I can't do anything without you. I can't, I can't. I am completely. It's impossible. I need you to even give me extra help. I need like extra training wheels. So that was just a huge relief. I think encountering that prayer was God's way of saying, I need you to understand this if you're going to be a disciple. And then what did that change like on the surface of your life? I think it, 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 the relief of course brought sense of joy and then looking at everything as ways that he was trying to communicate to me. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I think oftentimes we, um, again, our cultures is, here are all the options and I'm paralyzed by paralysis by analysis and you're not able to make a mistake and you better get it right because, you know, success is really important. And I think it just made me look at everything kind of like with the sacramental worldview and that God is communicating to me through what happens, through the people I meet, through the opportunities that come up. And Father Caron once said that the heart is the truth detector. Mm. So instead of everything kind of being morally neutral or kind of an abstraction, things became 
um, communicative. So, yeah. and to pay attention to, well, where where am I encountering truth and beauty and freedom internally? Where am I becoming more of myself? What resonates with who I am, with my authentic self, the way that God created me to be? So instead of having to make it an, ab an abstract decision or a criteria that's of the world, then my heart became the criteria and not heart in, an, in a purely emotional way, but heart with my re in the biblical sense, in your reason and your affection in an integrated way. So to then, I think spiritual intelligence is honestly say, where is Christ showing up? Where is Where am I experiencing this joy, this truth, this beauty, this freedom in what happens to me? And then to be loyal to it because then we have to say no to a lot of things in life. We have to die to self. We have to say no to really great ideas, really great opportunities to say yes to where is where is Christ showing up and then to be loyal to where he's happening. Mm. That, that did that for me. Yeah. The word that comes to mind as you share that is the word trust. You know, like um, like trust in me. Like God, again and again, God comes in the scripture says, do not be afraid. Um, you know, I think of like um, after Adam and Eve sinned, it's like the advent of their flight or flight instinct being directed toward God. And like that continues to resonate in our human nature. Yeah, but God continues like this gentle, loving demonstration of his trustworthiness. And so much like you, you talked about like our society not supporting spirituality or faith or maturity uh, or health even. And I think so much of it is because our society is built on a foundation where there is no trust, right? If you go back to like the philosophical foundations of modernity, really it starts out with this idea that like you can't trust other people. Like you, people by nature are bad. And so we need the government to kind of have this threat of violence over us so that we all behave. And that's like the foundation of our society and everything then is built on this presupposition um, that like you can't trust anyone. Where Christendom's the exact opposite. Like it's a civilization built on a foundation of trust that God, God's got this. God's providence is in control. Other people are, are at base good, even though they sin and they're broken. Um, and so like in our own conversions and our own journeys, so much of it is like that personal experience, both like of the head, but then the deeper experience of the heart that God's trustworthy and that he loves us and that we can trust him and, and that we can walk in that, in that love and in that faith. Um, and, and to me, like that's the context that makes sense of our spiritual childhood to God. Cause it's like an invitation to love him the way that an infant loves their parents. You know, it's not just like a, like, God, you can help me when I'm having a hard time, but like, God, I can't do anything without you. <laughs> like the baby can't feed itself, can't pick up its head, can't roll over. Uh, and that's, and that's like reality. Like that's our, our state in relationship with God. Yes. And that again is not a virtue, that reality, which is humility, hmm. you know, humility is about reality is again, not one that is supported in this culture. Yeah. We don't like how it feels be a child. We don't like how it feels to be humble, um, to be in reality because it actually, and it makes more, it makes life more exciting as you know, like to trust God and people could throw that out and like, what does that actually mean? But it, it means like a constant death to self in a sense that like there's an adventure I'm part of. I don't exactly know what the plot twists are going to be even in my day, but I know that as a child, if the father's with me, then I can roll with it. But that 
takes a commitment that is you can't be trusting and in control and so that that decision has to be made on a daily basis do you do you want to have the adventure of a child mm. you don't get to control things but things end up more interesting or do you want to try and control things and then you know we end up as we are culturally speaking really frustrated really fearful really addicted and really lonely yeah and in my full-time job, I get to do a lot of training for people who work in the churches throughout our diocese. And the one phrase that's really struck me recently that came to me was, every day working for the church is bring your child to work day. We just <laughs> got to remember that we're the child uh, and not the parent. And as long as we remember, like every day is bring your child to work day and every day I'm the kid in the situation. That is so <laughs> like, funny. It that, goes a lot better. Than <laughs> that's so funny. I love that. Way to bring St. Therese in everywhere. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, like what, so you have this moment of conversion, this prayer that pierces your heart, that reorganizes your posture toward the world and toward God. Like what was the journey like from that moment of conversion, like through then the difficult stages of like maturing in the faith to like where you are now of like, you know, working for and Dow and having an awesome podcast and like traveling around the country and sharing the gospel. Yeah. What was that journey like? Yeah. Um, again, like all discipleship, it was very much step by step. It was like just the next, the next move, the next thing. Mm. I ended up meeting people in ecclesial movements of the church that were true Christians and true disciples. I had left the church for a while, and I, I fit the statistic: eighty percent leave by the age of twenty-three. I had left. Yeah, I had left because the gospel actually is attractive, but reductions of the gospel are not attractive. So if we wonder why people leave it's because they're not being evangelized the actual gospel yeah yeah so i left and how i came back was i and i were and i remember having an intellectual conversion i had read books and thought okay well if, if jesus is the son of god and i think he is and and then i think that the that the church the catholic church is the one that he founded but i was very upset about that because again christian life is not about what is in books but is in life itself so I thought, I, I prayed to God, I said, look, if you want me to be Catholic, you know, if you want me to be a Catholic Christian, you've got to send me disciples because yeah. who am I going to hang out with? You know, there's like, this is, I, I'm not, I'm not, this is not working for me. <laughs> yep. And then he answered that like very shortly after. And then my whole world really did open up because hmm. it's one thing to read about the beauty of the gospel. It's another thing to, to taste it in communal life. In, in, in the actual incarnational reality of what it means to be a Christian. That was ex in, in, in incredibly life-changing, um, obviously. So that sealed the deal on my conversion. After that, I really wanted to study theology, um, not because I had any kind of ambitions to do anything. I had zero. I really went, Andrew, because I wanted to know things I thought would be important to living this life. And I had been deprived of that education for most of my life. As you, as you know, working in the church and catechesis, it's been quite mm -hmm. a struggle for decades. <laughs> I think that once church kind of figures out how to do this in Catholic schools, right? And, and, and you know, the new evangelization's over, probably we'll be dead. <laughs> we'll be dead by then. But, um, you know, I wanted to know the things that should have been transmitted to be in normal family life, church life, school life that weren't. 
So I didn't go to graduate school with any kind of theological ambition at all. The plan was go. I go for two years. I learn what I need to learn to live this well. And then I go back to my life. That's it. Of course, that's not what happened. <laughs> so after that, I was I was I had nothing to do after after theology school. And a priest friend of mine got made pastor, and he said, "Hey, would you like to come revive this dying parish with me?" And I thought, mm. "Sure, got nothing better to do. <laughs> What's the name of the parish?" Well, it's Saint Ambrose, Saint Ambrose mm. Parish. Praise God, which was the obviously the author, the saint of the prayer that, you know, that we just prayed earlier. So that was a little funny, but okay, let's do this. And then after that, I went on to teach high school theology, uh, high seniors, high school seniors. Like you said, you're a child at work. I was certainly a student at God's feet because there's nothing like teaching, number one, the most, uh, the incredible profession in the world, I would say, because as Father Giussani said, it's right in the middle of humanity. You're right there, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, right when things are in such a dramatic moment. To be able to accompany them in that was a huge privilege in my life. Um, And then after that, um, I was able to come work for where I work now, which is is Endow Groups, which is an incredible apostolate um, you know, Fulton Sheen once said that a level of civilization is the level of the quality of its women, to paraphrase it. John Paul II knew that. Actually, all the popes of the 20th century knew that. And they kept pointing us back to women, pointing us back to the feminine genius, saying that, look, if we're going to, we're in a crisis of civilization. Um, and I love what Pope Paul VI said at the end of the Second Vatican Council. He said, women of the universe whether believing or not, whether believing or unbelieving, it's up to you to save the peace of the world. Well, the Holy Fathers, who I think they were all saints in the 20th century, truly really understood that let's go where things are most spiritually powerful. If the women are holy, the world would be holy. Just as the women in the early church were the first converts and evangelizers, so too now and as, as Monsignor Shea likes to say, we're back in apostolic times, right? This is the most Christian world. We need to once again turn to the spiritual and cultural values that women are particularly gifted in manifesting and also reminding us of simply for being women. Yeah. That's what I do. Well, I love what you said. Like that, that first step after having that experience with the Lord it's almost like God immediately like passed you off to other people, but not in a bad way because that's the way it always works in the scriptures. God uses people to do his work. So like we're designed, we're incomplete without God, but God's designed us to receive him through others. Um, so like that, that maturing process always happens in the context of community. And, um, you know, I'm thinking of like, uh, the, the, the catechism talks about God's fatherhood as pointing to God's transcendence. But then understanding God as mother is an emphasis on God's imminence, God's closeness, God's relational dynamic, and and how I really believe like the language of the woman's body is in part speaking to that that connectedness, that space to receive the other, that relational need of humanity. Um, and, and like without that, we just think like all I need to do is go learn the ideas, get equipped, and go do the work. Like it's a matter of like uh, 
you know, we need like a, to do the new evangelization, we need like a spiritual trade school, you know, where we all go and get the, the, uh, the course sort of mission principles and we go out and get to work spreading the gospel. Um, but I really believe part of the, the, the deeper part of the new evangelization is a return to a, a structure of the world that is more in line with reality. Right. And, and that's what the, that's what the, uh, I think the feminine genius like proclaims, right. It's that, that touchstone to reality. Um, and I love how that was like part of your story, how like it went from sort of you and Jesus to you and other people with Jesus. Um, and that's so essential. That's so essential. Um, and, and, and then thinking of like, you bring up, well, Jasani and community and liberation and, and their school of community and how that's at the core of that. And then now with endow groups, how it's really kind of at the core of what you're about in that apostolate too. Um, yeah. It's yeah. So, oh, go, so go on. No, go ahead, please. I was just wanting to know like what, like when you say community, you know, like a lot of people hear that differently. Like yeah. some people think that you live like, well, like she must like live like a nun, you know, like, okay. and, and other people hear that and they think, well, well, that means like she has people to go out and get drinks with once a week. Right. Um, so I'm just curious, like practically, like what, like, what does that look like in your life? That communal life? Yeah, that's such an important question. I'm so glad you said that because I, yeah, yeah. I certainly do not live like a nun. Um, but uh, you reminded me earlier, I wanted to say that Pope Benedict has this beautiful line in his book, What It Means to Be Christian. God comes to men only through other men. Hmm. You can't really understand what the Christian experience is without that incarnational experience of the other in community. And I love this question because you're absolutely right. This is something like not to be misunderstood. Um, it has less to do with let's say living in a household, roommates or whatever, or living in a religious community or living married life or living, you know, giving drinks once a week or whatnot. It has whatever your particular state in life is, right? The details of the circumstances of how many and who are around you has less to do with community than the actual quality of the connection that you have with other people in Jesus. So that sharing of life, sharing of the interior life with others, that's what I mean by community. Because yeah. if community were only about just being around other people, well, we wouldn't have an epidemic of loneliness, would we? Yeah. But we do. We absolutely do. And that is because we have lost the art of how to be together and how to connect with each other. That level of satisfying intellectual, emotional, spiritual connection has been lost. That education has been lost. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I think there's, there can be no lonelier place than being, um, you know, that person that's living in what's on the surface appears like radical community but internally they're isolated and hidden and afraid, you know? So sometimes the convent's the loneliest place in the world. I know I was in seminary for four years and like, there are definitely seasons where like, I live with a hundred other guys that we studied the same stuff. We had this great communal life of prayer and sharing every meal and, you know, playing sports together. And it was like awesome. But 
sometimes the loneliest place to be was in my room when I was isolated. Um, you know, so, so this like having the veneer of community is no guarantee of real connection. Right. Um, when you could be somebody who lives alone and is radically connected and vulnerable to others, once again, going back to the idea of trust, we can't be vulnerable without trust. Um, so, so this idea of, of authentic connection, of deep connection, of knowing yourself and sharing yourself, of letting people into the truth of your life and receiving other people's lives. Right. Um, like that's, that's the core of community. Yep, that is. And I really appreciate what Pope Francis said in, um, was it in Evangelic Gaudium, maybe? One of those documents. Yeah. <laughs> that you, know, it, you, you leave people, I'm gonna paraphrase, you leave people in existential orphanhood if you're not accompanying them on a pilgrimage with Christ to the Father. So you can be there for people, right? And I think American culture in particular has that kind of vibe. I want to be there for you, you know. Mm -hmm. We do all these things. I want to be there for you. I want to support you and whatever, you know. But then people are still miserable because at the end of the day, like, I cannot satisfy you. You know, a support group can't satisfy you. Ultimately, yeah. you can mediate Right. It can temper, it can alleviate, it can band-aid, it can be a little tile of I don't know, communal Tylenol, you know, alleviating whatever emotional pain. But it can't actually heal you and it can't ultimately satisfy you. That you need God for. That's God's that's God's terrain. So uh you know, even if we become the most uh, we've done our work in therapy, we've healed our attachment issues, we you know, we still Name Jesus, because our hearts are made for the infinite. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our hearts are made for the infinite. Um, if our our attachment issues are are only healed when we're attached to God, <laughs> which sometimes includes counseling, right? But it's all designed toward that that relationship, that central relationship of being a son or daughter to the Father. Um, yeah, and I think what I what I appreciate about your podcast and the title you're physically spiritual is that those 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 natural emotional attachment issues are super helpful right mm -hmm. we are blessed to be living in a time where we have a lot of information about the ways in which our bodies affect our souls we're body soul composites right we know mm -hmm. that if we're not eating and exercising well that affects us spiritually that affects our relationship with god it's weird we'd like to think kind of kind of gnostic in our thinking that you know, the body is maybe not bad, but not as relevant, right? Yeah. But it is important and it does matter. And then, yeah, with the attachment issues, I mean, for many people, for most of us, we didn't come from these like perfectly, and again, there's no such thing as like a perfect functional home, Christian home, mm -hmm. but, you know, we have varying levels of attachment issues. Are we anxiously attached? Do, do people, do we use people to emotionally regulate us? Or do we just avoid, because like you said, to have connection, you have to be vulnerable and trust, but that can, that's risky. And so I don't have the courage to do that because I might get hurt and I don't have the security that I can repair that hurt. So all that is really important in understanding how we relate to God. Mm. You know? um, but then again, at some point, you you get to that point where then he has to like, take over or he has yep. to be part of it to be around yep and and i think every form of idol worship comes with with it a certain amount of schizophrenia 
or like a like a bipolar kind of effect because you both desperately love and need your idol but also desperately hate and want to kill your idol yeah um you know it's like we 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 have created um a cult of the body as the catechism says in our modern culture um and and we we pour this effort into like creating this perfect like idol of physical appearance but then in all the ways we do it if you were to like you know observe the behavior like someone would an animal in a zoo and it's like well how how do you achieve this health well you starve yourself you beat yourself up in the gym it's like you like in all these ways we're, we're basically like simultaneously um like worshiping and like torturing our bodies in right. order to get them to conform to uh to this image of uh, this idol really this idol of uh what we think is going to make us happy yeah um, you know in in all this in our society um what rings in my heart is um really th- in the season of the church thinking about the eucharist yeah um you know we we're talking about loneliness and community and connection and we're in the season of the eucharistic revival and with that i i feel like so much of like going back to the idea of the language of god's body you know i i've i've meditated a lot on like what's the language of god's body in the eucharist um and and what i've the lord spoken to me in that meditation is like i will be with you always um also of like nurturing like like you don't have to worry about where your next meal is coming from like jesus saying i have food that you have which you do not know um like so much of what god's communicating to us in the eucharist speaks to our deepest human instincts and needs yep. so like it, it simultaneously is the fulfillment of of like our natural instincts and desires like the things that drive us to to be that person that's not trustworthy that the moderns talk about but it's also then like taking us beyond ourselves to a supernatural level. Yes. Um yeah, so I'm just curious like how has the Eucharist then entered in to this journey in your life and been part of this community that you're a part of? I really appreciate what you said uh what you all that, all that you just said there's so much like richness in there it would like take a long time to unpack it but it was really beautiful because it does I mean it's bread, right? The Eucharist is bread like that is so simple and humble and like basic and humane and Mm -hmm. physical um and but then it's also like the body of christ which is like completely unrelatable spiritual truth so talk about (laughs) this like i don't know the way the, the way you unpacked it i thought was was lovely um i think that to begin um with the Eucharist can be effective, but also difficult because it's the source of the summit, but we're not in a culture where we're ready to like summit, right? We, we like this sort. So I think with the Eucharistic revival, which of which I have many, many things to say about, but I'll, uh, I'll edit my thoughts on it. I think, yeah. <laughs> We need to not um, treat the Eucharist like a mat, like superstitiously, but sacramentally. Yeah. And if if it, if if the if the revival is actually going to happen, I don't know if it will, to be honest. But if it will happen, culturally speaking, of course, it's going to mm-hmm. happen in many people's lives. But for the church in in America, then 
we have to be those sacramentals. The pe- the community has to be, because there's no way I'm going to evangelize uh, without entering into someone's life, sharing someone's life. Father Giussani said that second to actually giving one's physical life, that hospitality was the greatest sacrifice someone could make for another. He also said that if he wasn't a priest, he'd love to be a waiter. He <laughs> <laughs> talked about simplicity. But that um, interior sacrifice to let someone into your life so that they can share with you and get a taste of your interior life so that the Eucharist is more digestible, so to speak. Yeah. Kind of the work of those of us who already believe in the Eucharist. For those of us who already believe in the spiritual, sure, we need to remember, oh my gosh, maybe I should get to daily mass more. Oh my gosh, maybe I should receive it more efficaciously, prepare better. Like, sure, let's clean up a bit. You can always mm-hmm. clean up. Um, but really, revival is going to happen in terms of a larger church community if those of us who get it, so to speak, can have somebody enter into our life and we can be good hosts so that they can begin to understand that, wow, I might feel like an existential orphan. I might feel lost and self-reliant and frustrated most of the time. But I know when I go to Mass, objectively, and any of the sacraments, objectively speaking, God is going to show up for me. That's an incredible objective reality. There is a loaf of bread or a host that will objectively be there for me to consume, that we claim to be the body of Christ that we consume to be in union with him. That's like him showing up. But in a culture that doesn't know how to commit, and flake in a band, right? Like it's showing up. But that means that I have to show up for that person. Yeah. Um, Jan Chernowski, um, John Paul II's youth minister, I love him so much. And I love how much uh, John Paul II loved him, which makes mm-hmm. sense because he was his youth minister and he had a picture of him on his desk his whole life. And he called him a walking catechism. Like, I love how John Paul II. Huh who's like, let's face it, a really cool dude, you know, is kind of making fun of his like nerdy, introverted, you know, youth minister. But he said that, you know, youth group for him was was Jan Taranowski opening up the riches of his interior life to him. Hmm. You know, here we have, we were stressing out in the church, bureaucracy, programs, make sure we get the right pepperoni on the pizza or the kids won't believe in Jesus, right? And here, here you on Tiranowski, this like kind of funky guy, it's just like opening up what his prayer life looks like to these boys and in doing so is, is prepping them to become priests and saints. Mm. Yeah. That's what to me Eucharistic revival actually looks like. Yeah, yeah. Um, but getting beyond like those people who already believe that's the key, right? That's the key. Like if we can really revive the wider church or even the wider culture, frankly, I think the problem is people don't care. No. Like people don't hate the church. People just don't care about the church. Like yeah. they don't feel like they need it. Right. If I'm addict, if I have an addiction, well, I can just go, you know, I got, I got Gabor Mate and I could take some psychedelics. You know, if, if I'm hungry, well, I got food stamps. If I, if I'm lost, I have a GPS. Like we live in a society where our, our felt need of dependence is basically been blotted out 
by the illusion of these structures yeah. in our society that that present us with the the concept that that any of my problems can be solved by technology and by force over nature. Um, so, so like, frankly, I just think people don't care anymore. Like, like recently we had um, in in our diocese there was just you know another another scandal of, of, of something that a priest did and and people were concerned that it was going to hit the news and be a big story. It wasn't. Yeah. They're used but to frankly, it. I just think people just don't care about the church anymore. Yeah. They just don't care. Um, so I'm curious, like in, in your mind, like how do we pierce that, that veil of apathy in our society of, yeah, yeah. Just people don't, don't care anymore. They don't. <laughs> yeah. I think there's like many, many ways to approach that. One good bad news is, you know, American culture, America is in a decline. Hmm. Oh, we will get to a part point in our history. This is like so painful for me to say as the first, you know, first generation American. I'm like, how? We just got here. Like, <laughs> just a we keep having to run away from terrible governments. But anyway, putting my personal family history aside, like we are going to be humbled, right? Yeah. It's really easy. This is why I love teaching high school at a poor school, right? Because when you're poor, you're hungry. The rich school with the kids driving Mercedes Benz, they don't care about the gospel. So I never wanted to teach at that kind of high school. I wanted to teach at the poor school because you're more open to the gospel. This is why Mother Teresa called America the loneliest country in the world. Poverty of loneliness. When you have money and self-sufficient or the illusion of self-sufficiency, mm-hmm. you don't need the other person. I think I've told this story before somewhere else, but you know, my sister and I got into a fight once before mass and before going to Holy Communion, communion. And what do we do? We drove our separately in our separate cars, you know? I mean, but we can do that because we're in America. We have our own cars, right? We're not in Egypt like our parents are. We're stuck walking together, right? There is something to too much material wealth that separates people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So good, bad news. We'll get there in America. And then and then the apathy will go away. But I think for now, the education um, that Pope Benedict provides us in Deus Caritas, I think is really important for us to know about that mm-hmm. even in a, he says this, I have it, paragraph 27, if anybody wants to look, I think it's 27, if anyone wants to look it up. You know, even in a perfectly just ordering of society, even if you have a perfect government, which of course there isn't, Mm-hmm. That will never eradicate the need for the church because what the church does is provide that loving personal concern. Mm-hmm. It provides love that no government can give you. We need love. And I think that that is perhaps, apart from suffering, the only way to break someone out of the apathy is the mm-hmm. love that. And this is what I wasn't apathetic in my 20s, but the unconditional, gratuitous Christian love of the people in the Christian community that I met, their love for my happiness, for my destiny, in a disinterested, detached way, they didn't want anything from me, that is when I began to understand the Christian faith. Hmm. Oh, God doesn't need, I wasn't reading the catechism, right? But in a total act of gratuitous, right? Unnecessary, I'm an unnecessary contingent being Mm -hmm. 
was in the encounter with that kind of disinterested love for my own happiness from people that looked at me with the gaze of Jesus. That's when I began to understand what Christianity is. So I would say for the most addicted, zombied out, apathetic person to encounter that sort of person, well, at the very least, doesn't mean they're going to like follow a reasonable path as to why this person loves them that way or cares about them in a special way. But it's a shot to provoke them, right? Because holiness, love, beauty, they do seize the heart. That's what happened to me. I think that's the that's the best we've got is to really, again, be those people that are fascinating, are interesting, are loving. I think when we get what does Pope Benedict say and what it means to be Christian, like how far we are from a world in which people need to no longer be taught about God because he's present within us. When we stop talking so much and take Catholic social teaching out of the books and just like into the world, mm -hmm. then we'll start to like make a dent in the new evangelization, which we have yet to do. And I think we can learn from the secular world. Um, they don't have the ultimate solution, but they diagnose the problem pretty well. They... Uh, there's a coffee shop in California called Kind Cafe or La La Land Kind Cafe. They foster, they mentor foster youth, hire them. And as they serve you a cappuccino, someone says, I love you. I mean, it's really weird. Like I, I bought a cup of coffee. I mean, it's talking about, talk about consumerizing love, right? Like capitalism and love, right? But they understand that the world needs love. Now they're they're going about it in an awkward consumeristic way but i think we can learn from that and say you know where where can we kind of get into the culture so that we're loving not because someone bought a cappuccino but because the world needs to be loved desperately yeah yeah you mentioned beauty um and that's something i've been pondering a lot recently because um i feel like i feel like we're always vulnerable to beauty um, we're the hu human, hu we have no defense against beauty. Um, so I think beauty often precedes love. Um, and beauty, I think also makes us a bit irrational, you know, think of like, uh, as a, uh, think of like a married couple and it's like, there's a, there's a point in your dating relationship where you're completely irrationally seeking one another. <laughs> um, and you think everything's going to be perfect. And then there's a point you know, 10 years into the marriage where you look at each other and think, why the heck did we do this? Like, <laughs> like, and you kind of ponder, like, did we make a mistake here? And, yep. and at that point, it's like that, that choosing each other, right? It's, be, you become unnecessary to each other in a way that is beautiful, right? And you continue to deepen, but there's also that phase of like irrationally seeking because you're captivated. Right. Um, and I look back at my own conversion and there's definitely a phase of like, I don't know anything, yeah. But I was captivated by the Lord and and His love, and I and I desperately needed it, like like a like someone who didn't have water in a desert, you yeah. Know? Um. So I I'm curious of like how beauty like captivated you, but then also how you see that playing out in the work you do now. Yeah, I love love that question. Um, I think beauty played a huge role for me in my conversion, but the beauty of community life, but also the beauty of the church's like 
liturgy, tradition, music, well, even if it's not church music, but just concert music, Beethoven, Mozart, artwork, those those are things that particularly my spiritual father, Father Giussani, really cared about um, and was part, part of the formation of people in community liberation. Beauty is a huge value in in the movement. And um, when Ratzinger preached at Giussani's funeral homily, he talked about how he grew up in a poor home and sometimes they would sacrifice bread for music, for beauty, because man is more than just, um, you know, a sensible creature. He's also a spiritual creature, spiritual creature that needs the higher things. Because like you said, beauty can be quite irresistible. Yeah. And then really reawaken one's heart. I worry in this culture that we have become so morally depraved that beauty has become a pain point. Mm-hmm. There's no longer, it, it's like beauty is too painful. Uh, I think there was a time when a, a beautiful woman would captivate a man that needed conversion. Mm-hmm. Uh, now I think what I'm seeing is that beauty is a threat. And there's such a high level of deformity that they want to stay away from it. Uh, that's very real for me to say and very, very problematic. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that so then it then it takes a certain a huge choice to say this wholesomeness, this beauty, this goodness is actually attracting. Mm-hmm. I think it's becoming harder to um, to want. Um, so I don't know what, you know, solutions to world problems or the situation, <laughs> but I, I'm that, that has, uh, I have noticed that that has, yeah. I think it's a big problem. So then maybe we're back to, 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 you know, how miserable can you get? Uh, can you allow yourself to get miserable enough, uh, to want another thing? Um, but yeah, beauty has been huge for me. And I, I, at, at, at teaching high school, I started a thing called, um, project beauty where we would stop theology class, stop and have an encounter with beauty. Hmm. And I think of of all the things that I did, you know, there was like class curriculum time, but then there was what formation time. That was one of the most effective gestures that we did. Cause and then the students would take over. Here's a piece of music, here's the artwork, here's the, you know, my nature walk or whatever the encounter was. They would then share it, and that to tie, tie to tie in the formation that why does beauty painful in some way? Why does beauty wound you? Because that beauty is finite in this life, but we're made for a beauty that is eternal. So there's always going to be that experience of sadness along with beauty. So then to have to talk about their experiences with beauty, but then to give give the students a language by which they can understand their experience, I think was one of the best things that happened in high school for me. Yeah, as you're, you're saying, my first spiritual mother was Teresa of Avila, yep. and um, in her myst- most famous mystical experience, probably she talks to that angel piercing her. Yeah, the, the air was on fire, so it's like simultaneously like cauterizing the wound, but then also wounding more deeply. Yeah, and that's that dynamic of beauty where it simultaneously heals and wounds because it because it it digs deep into the heart and it, it extracts and and beauty always. Um, carries with it the potential of, um, of like mistaking, right. The thing reflecting God's beauty for the thing in itself. 
right? So, so you're, you're, so you're, you're constantly being drawn into a kind of idolatry as you encounter beauty. So it's, it, but that's like, I think just reality, like we're just constantly limited in our capacity to find God. Um, so like, uh, I feel like one of the biggest symptoms of, of all of this in our society's loneliness, right? There's no one more lonely in, in creation than the enemy, than Satan. Yep. Um, and, and as we, we, we travel down this path, I think one of the biggest symptoms of it is, is just isolation, loneliness. Like we're, we've never been quote unquote more connected than we are in this digital age or even the post digital age that we're entering into with AI. Um, but on the other hand, I think we've also never been more lonely. Um, well, maybe maybe since uh, Adam and Eve sinned, they're, I think they're really lonely in that moment too. But but we have a really high level of loneliness today. Yeah. Um, yeah. In in like in, in your life, how has that that played out of like seeking that community, um, but then also like the experience of loneliness being turned into solitude, right? Because I think that's the shift. Because there's like a there are times where being alone is essential, but that being alone isn't actually being alone. Like it's finding God in the solitude versus that radical connection um, with others of vulnerability where we're finding God in others, right? Both spaces, I think the difference is finding God and not finding God. <laughs> yes. Um, but how do we take that journey? Yeah, well, I think we, how do we take that journey? Huh. Again, this culture makes it so hard. I mean, think the, as the scriptures say, the violent take heaven by force. Hmm. You're like actually quite violent in um, biting off the distractions of the day. Hmm. Um, I think James Clear, his book, Atomic Habits, has some like good tips about, you know, make your physical reality like when i wanted to get my prayer life back in order in 2020 pulled out my massive sacred heart of jesus icon put it in the chair right in front of the door where i wake up right like that's kind of violent right um you know deleting emails or texts from people that you're just not going to respond to you know the you know healing the codependency of no i'm not going to help with that program like there's a certain like violence that needs to happen in terms of like deleting stuff but then as you know as as we are all somewhat addicts like then what do i fill that up with mm -hmm. right then then that intelligence has to be filled up with things that are unique to my personal vocation so that i can mediate what eventually will be from aloneness to solitude and I think really surrounding yourself with people who are going to, I think Real King has a quotation about like the greatest connection. Again, I'm paraphrasing and butchering poetry, but like yeah. the greatest connection is to like guard over someone's solitude, right? Mm. We Are we guardians of each other's solitude? Well, I don't know. Some of us, but we could, we could stand to do that more. That means yeah. we can get used to silence. And I, I mean, one of my friends thought I was suicidal because I gave away like all of my CDs. You know, I, <laughs> I regret that. No, and I don't. But like, I, it was is what had to be done, right? I, I had to, it was so dramatic, you know. But I like literally had to get rid of the CD. Literally had to turn off the music. Literally, like, there's that. Depending on where you are in your journey with this, like, there has to be that phase of like 
the emotional discomfort of letting go of the noise, the distraction, right? So for the higher things, higher things are the higher things. So to like slowly and painfully cultivate yourself to be the sort of person then who can not just like have space for the higher things, but then enjoy the higher things, hmm. it gets it paradoxically it also gets lonely because the more you become that sort of person, the less you relate the, the less you relate to the world. But then, but then that primes you for, for for solitude, good solitude, where the Lord is actually present in the aloneness. Um, so this has to do with, of course, rooting out the vice of acedia, just spiritual laziness, um, sadness, despair. Like we're a very sad culture. Mm-hmm. We are we are slothful, and people think sloth just means oh, I'm just lazy and. I just don't want to go to church. It's 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 not that. It's a I am not going to be self-reliant, right? The heart of acedia is autonomy, right? Mm. Um my way is going to be the way, the opposite of discipleship. So you you have to choose in life. It's it's like the crisis point for any man, for any Christian. Will I choose to not be alone? To be a child of the Father, and then I have to like follow His rules and His path and His adventures. By the way, or am I going to give in to this vice with Cedia, which Evagrius said was the deadliest of the vices, because the heart of it is that self-reliance, that autonomy. Do I want to be in control and be alone, or do I want to be not in control, not alone? Mm-hmm. That's the choice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, that choice is the choice between living in reality and not living in reality. It is. It abso- absolutely. And that's exactly what Evagrius says. He says that the demons will plant these fantasies in the in the mind. He's talking to monks, right? But he's talking to all of us too. The monks like, oh, if I were in a different monastery, different brethren, you know, I mean, it's, it's like fantasy thinking, yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you're absolutely right. It is about reality. Do I want to be in the real or do I want to be in the like self-deception illusion, you know, thinking I'm in control when I'm not, you know? And then we, and then we have people who, again, going back to attachment styles, they're just like in their like defensive, self-protective modes because I don't want to trust people because, like you said, people aren't trustworthy. So I'm going to do everything I can to protect myself from other people because people will hurt me. Mm-hmm. And all my emotional energy there. Or if I'm more anxiously attached, am I going to just continually? be using people to emotionally regulate because I can't get to the point where I'm just going to turn to the Lord to emotionally regulate me, so to speak, right? Because he's actually the one who can heal me. Yeah. So it's a, it's everything is comes down to our freedom, right? But it takes, like, I don't know who says this. Maybe it's Mother Angelica. Like, Christianity is not for wimps. It's just hard work. This is very dramatic hard work. Yeah. Yeah. And the, I know for me, one of the struggles is like the distance, right? So, um, at least my head runs a lot faster than my heart does. And my conversion of heart happens much more slowly than how quickly I can pick up new ideas. Um, so like I both feel the call to like share the gospel, but I'm still 
like less than halfway made myself. Yeah. So there's that, that tension of like, I'm called to share this, but I need to hear it probably more than the people I'm speaking to in some cases. Um, but, but there's like that illusion of like, people think if you get like a microphone in front of your face that you have it all figured out and you're living it perfectly and you're doing it. Like there's this kind of like celebrity culture where we, we assume we, we need people to be God for us. So we assume those people we look up to have it all figured out and are already made. Like in that tran- that celebrity culture transfers into our ecclesial context. But the reality is that like this is so difficult because um, like nobody knows the answers. Like because the answer isn't a bunch of concepts. Like Jesus says, "I am the way, the truth, and the life." Like like it's radical communion with God. So there's never a point where we're going to be completed. There's never a point where we have it figured out. Because then we'll, the ultimate temptation is the thinking we're not no longer dependent, we're no longer contingent, we're no longer reliant on God and, and those that God gives to us. Um, so yeah, this is a, this is a space. Uh, yeah. I'm so glad you said all that. Yeah. Yeah. This is a space of like the continual need to be at battle against your own vanity and pride and wanting to hide. Cause, cause at every step in the journey, there's a new temptation. Like it takes on a new, a new form. And I think of, um, like some of our church leaders who have done terrible things in the last decades where that's come to light. And, and it's like, I kind of feel that in some way of like having personal sin and, and wrestling with, with my own brokenness in light of the mission I'm called to. And the further you get along the journey, the more intense the temptation to hiding and isolation becomes. Yes. Because cause that distance between your high calling and your reality can appear more and more separate. Oh my right? God preach brother yeah so so like there's this radical need of like continued vulnerability continued self-disclosure continued growth and knowledge of self and continued humility that that becomes greater as you as you get older and grow along the journey yeah um and, and i think we're, we present ourselves with the opposite picture that that our thought is progress equals greater ease that the further I get along the journey, the more virtuous I'll be and the more easy all of this will become. Oh, the exact so. opposite is true. The further along you get, the more apparent the wound is and the more radical your need becomes. That's so true. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't, I mean, amen. And I love what you said about the temptation to like duck out of the game. For sure. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. you see more and more clearly this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd that I'm a part of this. Like God wants me to be a part of this, like restoring the temporal order. But like this, this on a national level makes zero sense Yeah, because I'm such a two, I'm like less than a two year old. So, and it's not pious words, you know, and we read that with like saints that obviously like we venerate and they're like, I'm the worst sinner in the world. I'm like, really though? Worry about <laughs> your character. But like you said, the more in touch you are with who God is, the more you see the discrepancy. And then you see how like like hilarious and fun God is. And he's like, yes, I will use you. You know, you're you're kind of a mess, but it's okay. I got it. You know? So just staying in the game is important. But I love how you said that. I think I'm going to go back and listen to that part a lot because I need that. Definitely need that. Yeah, So so today, like, How's the Eucharist in your life? I mean, it is 
I think the thing that there was a book I read by Father Hampshon, the Eucharist and Healing, that I recommend and love so much. For me, when like you were just saying, all the all the uh, discrepancies, hypocrisies, the the brokenness, the all of that. For me, the Eucharist is just not just, but my place of saying, "Here it all is." Um, I offer it to you. Heal what needs to be healed. And thank you for being objective, like showing up, you know, like dad showing up to your soccer game or whatnot. Like this, the Eucharist is like, I can count on it there, here, you know, which is a privilege. There are many places in the world that they're not able to receive the Eucharist. They're not able to to go to mass. They're not able to uh, do those things. So uh, we're very blessed here so far in that way but to like really access the spiritual power of the eucharist and to not just unite all of our like for me just here's all my suffering that i offer to you all the brokenness take with it what take what's worth taking and then please heal you know i I pray very specifically when i receive the eucharist for very specific uh, intentions and and that's something that father hamps really emphasized to do like don't miss out on that moment of union hmm. and asking and uniting amen well i think i think we're going to end on that note um simone thank you so much for coming on the show thank you so much for sharing your journey for everything you do in this work um yeah this has been a real joy if you want to find anything Simone's up to head over to culturalgypsy.com. You can also find her work at endow groups. If you're looking for, um, you know, someone to come speak at your parish mission, someone to help you with a retreat or whatever, look her up. If you want a great material for your woman's group or want to start a woman's group or a women's ministry in your parish, look up endow groups in the link. I'll link her podcast in the show notes. I'll link all the books that we talked about and try to find some of the quotes. Uh, so just head over to the show notes to look it up and you can find Endow Groups anywhere on social media with the handle at Endow Groups. So Simone, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to or watching Physically Spiritual. I'm so grateful for every moment you've given to this show. Please remember to subscribe, like, follow, and share the show. And if you want to support everything we're doing at Physically Spiritual or at Awaken Catholic, you can become a patron of the show at physicallyspiritual.com. To find anything I'm up to, head over to becominggift.com. God bless everyone.